KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. You are listening to the Arab Shabbat program with your host Jonathan Snowbell, Kafzayin Kislev, Arab Shabbat Chanukah Parshat Miketz. First of all, I'd like to thank all the listeners who uh, wrote back to the program, either to myself or to the office of the of the virtual Beit Midrash telling us that the short story that we spoke about last week was called The Ones Who Walk from Amalas. Um, anyone who's interested in the specific details can write to me and uh, I'll pass it on to them. Um, <coughs> I want to address quickly one point relating to last week and then we'll move on to this week's show. In my opinion, Torah relates to all issues, Jonathan Pollard included. If some of these issues sometimes... Um, are tangential to what we call political issues, it's a problem because political issues are part of our life as well and they're part of what the Torah has to relate to as well. Um, when one walks into the Rosh Hashiva Rav Maidan's house, there's a picture of Jonathan Pollard on the wall as soon as you come in. On the other hand, I will uh, be willing to say that I question my precise formulations if they were all appropriate or maybe some of them were a little bit too political. There was one uh, listener who wrote back that he wasn't happy with the content of the show, and I apologize to him and I apologize to other listeners who might have been offended. Again, I want to reiterate my dealing with the issue of Jonathan Ballard per se, I don't think is inappropriate for a Torah show to deal with. I think Torah has what to say about this issue. Perhaps some of the specific formulations that I made may have gone over the border of what the Torah has to say, and may, maybe ha- int- uh, my political views may have uh, um, entered there as well, though probably my political views are somewhat based on my Torah views as well. But again, I'm, I stand, uh, I, I, I accept the possibility that um, there were some mistakes made there, and I apologize, and will continue to deal with walking on the border between uh, pure Torah in everybody's opinion and sometimes maybe we'll walk over to practical issues, everyday issue, current event issues that some might say are political and shouldn't are not appropriate and others will say of course it's appropriate if the Torah has something to say about our current event issues of course it's appropriate. In any case, once again, thank you to all those listeners and once again uh, this this uh, this managed to generate more uh, listener feedback. So those who are interested in writing to me, though I didn't manage to write back to everybody this week because my parents are visiting from Toronto and I've had a little bit less time. But thank you. And my email is jsnowbell s n o w b e l l at gmail dot com. And of course, this week there's nothing better to speak about than Chanukah. Hopefully, as well, we'll be able to introduce the relationship to the parsha. Um, but the main focus is Chanukah and the message for Chanukah to us today. Um, there's, a, there's a famous story about when Reb Chaim Ibrisk gave a tshuva drasha. He was so modest that he would say, oh, uh, I have to give myself musr, so if anybody else wants to listen while I'm giving myself musr, they can listen as well. And in that vein, not trying to sound modest, but if I can internalize uh, the message of what I want to say today, on, my, on a personal level, uh, I'll be in a much uh, better state. Um, and I think this, this is true probably for all of us, both on a personal level and on a national level. Um, 
There's a famous question about the sources that discuss Hanukkah. Um, when we read Al-Hanisim, uh, before we read Al-Hanisim, if we discuss what are the main elements of Hanukkah, we'll usually come up to two points. There is the religious military victory over the, the Yivanim at the hands of the Hashemonaim, which reinstated uh, the, a Jewish kingdom in Eretz Yisrael on the one hand, and as well got rid of the the idolatrous influences that the the Yevanim had introduced into the Beit HaMikdash and into the country as well. Maybe not entirely removed, but certainly removed their influence to a large extent. That's all on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have, of course, Nes Pach Hashemin, the, the, the miracle of the oil that only a little bit was found, that was still pure, and that, that, that oil that should have lasted for only one day lasted for eight days. When we look at the sources about Hanukkah, there, there, we see a very interesting discrepancy. If we the Al Hanisim prayer that we say every day of Hanukkah, every day, three times a day during davening, during benching as well, Al Hanisim we will find that there is no mention of the Nes Pach Hashemin, Natim Biad Rabim, Zidim Biad It's about the victory, and the victory includes. And instituting a, a um, Jewish kingdom, as we said, and and purifying the Beit Hamikdash and setting it back on track. This is true, also more more surprisingly, in Migilat Hashmonaim. Migilat Hashmonaim, which tells in great, great detail the story of uh, of what happened and the battles around the story of the Hashmonaim fighting against the Yevanim and rebelling against them fails to mention Nespach Hashemin, the miracle of the oil. The miracle of the oil is 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 mentioned, I'm not sure for the first time, but is mentioned in the Gemara Shabbat. When the Gemara Shabbat discusses my Chanukah, what is Chanukah? And then it says, when the Chashmonaim entered the Beit HaMikdash, they only found one container of Shemin that was not defiled by the Ivanim, and they were, there was only one, enough for one day, but they managed to light that and it lasted for eight days. So again, interestingly, the Gemara Shabbat has a, has a flip side of this, where it mi- minimizes the, the, the battles and the purification of the Beit HaMikdash and puts all the focus on the miracle of Nespach HaShemen. Some want to go along the lines and say, look, the military religious victory before the destruction of the second Beit Hamikdash was the was more significant at the time than the miracle. But after the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash, it becomes irrelevant. How is it relevant to us that the Maccabim defeated some enemy? The the kingdom of the the Chashmonaim doesn't exist anymore. The Beit Hamikdash is destroyed. So what's the difference that they had a victory and the Beit Hamikdash was purified? So what? It was necessary after the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash and the Gemara Shabbat, which is post the destruction, of course, to focus on a different element of the of the victory, the Nespa Hashemin, which gives the eternal aspect to the holiday. This miracle. God's hand gives us an eternal element to the holiday. How this exactly is an eternal element, I'm not exactly sure. 
But I beg to differ about this explanation, and I want to give a different explanation. Perhaps this idea that holidays are irrelevant is a true idea. There's a, there's a book called Megillat Ta'anit, which has a long list of days that are celebrated in the time of the second Beit HaMikdash, which we're not allowed to fast on, or we're not allowed to uh, make eulogies on. Uh, different victories that took place, religious victories and the liking, that took place during the second Beit HaMikdash period, that were celebrated at that time. And they're all not relevant anymore. The second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. What does it matter that uh, we were able to sacrifice this sacrifice? We don't sacrifice anything anymore. We don't have a Beit HaMikdash. Chanukah and Purim, and specifically for our interest, Chanukah, fall out of this category. It's a holiday that we're not allowed to fast on and we're not allowed to eulogize on, and yet it managed to maintain an eternal aspect that's relevant to us today. I think, perhaps more than any other holiday, Chanukah I won't say more than any other holiday, I think Purim relates to this as well, but it's it's highlighted more in Chanukah. Chanukah is about hope. Hope comes in different shapes and sizes. On the most basic level, we all know that Chanukah is at the darkest point of the year, and this is of course relevant only to us listeners in the northern hemisphere. It's the darkest time of the year. On a combined level, on the solar calendar, solar calendar, it's December now. The days are still getting shorter and shorter. Uh, they're pretty much at the shortest point right now. So it's the darkest time of the year on the solar calendar. And Chanukah being at the end of the lunar month, at the end of Kislev, is also the darkest par- point in the month. So it's the combined darkest point in the month with the darkest point in the solar calendar. It's the darkest point of the year. And here, at the darkest point of the year, of course, we need light. And we have the light of the Nerot of Chanukah. This is relevant to the story of Chanukah as well. And we, if we say in in the Al Anisim prayer, Rabim biad me'atim, we, the the many were were put in the hands of the of the few. The chances of some small local army being able to defeat the the, the Greek Empire's armed forces was very very slim. They didn't have the numbers, they didn't have the weapons. They had knowledge of the land, they had motivation to defend their homeland and to defend their temple, their Beit HaMikdash, which the Greek soldiers probably lacked motivation. They had the knowledge of the caves and, and knowing the landscape better than, than, than the Greeks did. But clearly the odds were stacked against them. And the ability to overcome the odds is a a tremendous message for us. Uh, Today I I think the tendency of people in general is to be rational and to calculate the odds. And the odds are usually clear. What What is more obvious that should happen as a result of our actions? Now, if we act only on those odds, we'll never be able to overcome the odds. If we're always calculating and seeing what's rational, what's what's the best 
what's the most likely outcome, then often we'll, we'll bury ourselves into a certain reality and never allow it to change. If the Chashmonaim didn't act on religious belief, on love for their homeland, on love for the Beit HaMikdash, Perhaps they would have said, what are we doing here? This is crazy. To fight against this empire, we don't have a chance. Or our chances are very slim, but on those slim chances, let's not risk getting the, making the situation any worse. Had they used this rational way of thinking, and I use the word rational loosely here, they would never have fought back, and they wouldn't have won. I think this message in itself is an important message for eternity. Even if the specific victories of the Chashmonaim are irrelevant to us today, because the fact that Eretz Yisrael is in our hand today is after we lost Eretz Yisrael, after the Chashmonaim kingdom came down, was destroyed, and the Beit HaMikdash we don't have today, so it's not purified, and, and it's in the hands of the, 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 the Makom HaMikdash, the site of the Beit HaMikdash is not exactly in our hands today. So that's not relevant. But the message of hope, and the message of the ability to overcome the odds, and to break away from our present situation, is a message that we have to live with constantly. And be able to live both on a personal level, and on a national level. And this is where we come to our Parsha, of course. Because Yosef planted the seed for his hope at the end of last week's Parsha. When he told the Sar HaMashkim, when you go back to Paro, that I'm predicting in three more days you're going to go back to work for Paro, I want you to mention him to me that I, 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 I solved your dream. I explained your dream and I explained your dream accurately. I want you to mention him to... to I want you to mention to Paro that I have this skill. And perhaps that will be able to get me out of prison. So Joseph planted a seed for his salvation. As far as Joseph was concerned, it was, it was a seed that never grew. Because two years passed by, and perhaps for the first few weeks, the first few months, he was holding on to hope that the Sarah Mashkim would eventually gain up the courage to speak to Paro and tell him about Yosef, but it didn't happen. And when, when I assumed that it, by the end of the second year, that Yosef w- didn't have any hope at all. And suddenly, Paro has a dream after two years, and the seeds that Yosef planted two years earlier suddenly came forth. And suddenly, Yosef was taken out of prison. He predicts the seven years of, fa- the, of, of plenty and the seven years of famine. He is made the second in command in all of Mitzrayim, one of the greatest empires at the time, out of the blue. And here too we see where hope can get us. That in the worst of situations, here Yosef, taken away from his family, taken away from his country, put into prison... He has no hope of anything changing. He had a hope, but that hope seems to have evaporated. And suddenly, everything's turned around. He's not okay. He's not out of prison. He is the second in command in Egypt. And this, I think, 
is the message to us of Hanukkah for eternity that out of unrealistic situations something things can change even if it de- we don't see how things could change perhaps we sometimes plan like the Hashmonaim the Hashmonaim had plans they had military plans how they were going to overcome the the Greeks it depended on a lot of things coming together some of the things maybe weren't so likely that they would come together, but they came together and they won. And Yosef planned the seeds of his salvation, but he gave up on ever happening. Because two years passed and nothing happened. Certainly by now, the Saramashkim forgot about him, as the Torah attests to at the end of last week's parsha. Vayishkacheu. This belief that our lives can change on a personal level like Yosef, and that our lives can change on a national level like the Chashmonaim, is imperative to our existence. We're not always in the best situation on a personal level. We're not always on the best situation on a national level. And the idea that even against the odds, our situations can change is an imperative one to hold on to. And certainly, credit must be given where credit is due, Rabbi Nachman Breslev, certainly the idea of not giving up an Ein Yehush Ba'ulam is something that he took to a new level and made almost a fundamental of Judaism. At this point in the show, we of course like to turn to Rav Tavori. Rav Tavori, please. This week, we will briefly discuss the personality, the life of Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, the famous Mir Rosh Hashiva. Reb Chaim was born in 1902 in Kovna, in the heart of Lithuania. He was born into a family of Tamili Chachamim. His father was a, a Rav, but he was his mother was the daughter of the altar of Navardic, which means that he was already brought up in a house not only of Torah, his father was a Rav, but in the world of Musr, Navardic. Actually, the Sandak, his Sandak, was of Yitzhak Blazer, of Yitzhak Petterberger, also one of the great leaders of the Musr movement. As we can say about most of the Gedolim that we discuss, his childhood was spent in total immersion in learning. He showed great promise as an Ilui, and he moved to Stuchin. His family moved to Stuchin, and that's why the nickname that he was known in the world of yeshivas was Reb Chaim Stuchiner, Reb Chaim from the town of Stuchin. He went to teach at a very young age in the yeshiva of Reb Shimon Shkap in Grodna. That yeshiva had famous Talmidim who became the Rashi yeshiva that I knew from the days that I was growing up in yeshiva. Some of the Talmidim that Reb Chaim Shmulevitz had in this yeshiva in Gradna actually later on sort of became colleagues because the disparity of age was not that great. Some of the Talmidim were Reb David Lifshitz the Suval Kirov, who later spent many years 
as the Rosh Hashiva in Chicago, and then moved to Yeshiva's university where he was a Rebbe for many, many years. Another one of his Talmidim in, in, in the Yeshiva in Grodna was Rav Guskman, the author of Kuntrasei Shi'urim, who had a koach of chidush in his svarim that was unusual for at, in, in his generation. Rav Shimon very often quoted, I mean Rav Guzman very often quoted Rav Shimon, but he was not just a student of Rav Shimon in Grodny, he was a student of Rav Chaim Stuchim and Rav Chaim Shmulevitz also. One of the most famous Rashi Yeshiva of Panevish, Rav Shmuel Rozovsky, was also a Talmud there of Rav Chaim in the Yeshiva of Grodna. But of course, as time progressed and the Jews of Europe were forced to run away and bli- and find a, a miklat, find some sort of refuge someplace, the yeshiva moved, the yeshiva world moved to Japan and then to Shanghai. The biggest group of students that moved to Japan and Shanghai were the Talmidim of the Mir Yeshiva and Rav, Rav, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz at that time became totally involved with the yeshiva of Mir in Japan and Shanghai. He actually used to be the fundraiser for the yeshiva, not just the Rosh Yeshiva who said shiurim, but he was very active in supporting the yeshiva. The whole burden of the yeshiva really fell on his shoulders. I knew many of the Talmidim who learned in Shanghai at that time. These are the people that became the first generation, really, of the Rashi Yeshiva of America. Mo- many, many of the Rashi Yeshiva of America were students in Shanghai at the time that Reb Chaim was saying Shirim there. One of the Rebbe's of Yeshiva University, Rev Zipperstein, used to tell me that actually he spent time in Shanghai learning Bechavrusa with Reb with Chaim Shmulevitz, and later on, the only time that I personally met Reb Chaim was when he was visiting Rav Tziperstein, and I came in to visit Rav Tziperstein when Reb Chaim Shmulevitz was visiting him as well. In Shanghai, of course, he was a little bit older than many of the Talmidim there, and as I said, he was saying Shiurim there, but he had a relationship with some of the Talmidim as really as a father to them, they had run away, and they had nothing but the yeshiva. Rav Fishman used to tell me, one of the rabbis of Yeshiva University, who had learned in Shanghai, he told me the hasmada of the yeshiva in Shanghai was remarkable. But on one hand, it wasn't so remarkable. They had really nothing else to do. There was no possibility of going anyplace, doing anything, and they spent their t- time totally immersed in Talmud Torah. One of my closest friends in the world, Harav Tzvi Fishman, Zichonol was the first child born in Shanghai at that time. He told me that at his wrist, Reb Chaim was the Sandik. And Reb Chaim gave him a bracha. Reb Chaim said, at the, at the, at the wrist, you will become a God of Israel. So my friend used to say, with his sense of humor, that he never really realized that bracha to come true. But Reb Chaim's bracha had to come true. So indeed, it did come true. 
my friend was rather tall. So he said, if the bracha of being a God of Israel didn't come true in the spiritual sig- significance, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu made sure that the bracha would come true, at least in a physical sense, and he was considered a tall fellow, a God of Israel. After Reb Chaim was in Shanghai, as the fellows could leave Shanghai and find another place to establish the yeshiva, of course, the mere yeshiva moved to New York, and many of the mirrors moved for a while to New York and spent some time in the yeshiva of Mir in New York. Reb Chaim was one of them, but eventually Reb Chaim moved to Yerushalayim. He had married the daughter of Reb Lezir He was the son-in-law of the Rosh Yeshiva of Mir and joined his father-in-law in establishing Yeshiva in Mir. At that time, of course, the Yeshiva was rather small compared to today's Yeshiva of Mir, where the amount of students, I don't have any true facts and figures. Some people say 3,000, some people say 5,000, but there's no doubt that the Mir Yeshiva today is one of the largest Yeshivas. Perhaps Lakewood is just as big. It's hard for me to know, but there today the Yeshiva has grown to unbelievable extent. When Reb Chaim was there, he was the main demut of that yeshiva. Now what's very interesting to note is Reb Chaim was known as Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, a gadol batayra. If I would just say how much hasmada, how much lumdis he had, it sounds rather trite to talk about these gadolim. It's true he knew Babli, he knew Yerushalmi, he, he had a deep mind, he said wonderful, but you know, it's rather common when you talk about the great Rosh Yeshiva that he was a masmid and a tzaddik and, and Reb Chaim certainly was all that. But what was more interesting to me is that Reb Chaim, besides saying his regular Gemara Shirim, as an enikel, as a grandson of the, of the altar, growing up in the world which combined Torah and Musar, Reb Chaim used to say weekly Shiurim in Musar. The same person who said the Shiurim in Lundis also said the Shiurim in Musar. And I think in an ironic twist of faith, of faith, his Sichot un Musar became even more famous than his Shiurim in Lundis. Now, the students in the yeshiva probably appreciated the Shiurim in Lundis more than many of them would have appreciated the Sichot Musariot. But there are many people, I would assume it's more of Amcha, more of the people who liked to hear the Sichot Musar, which were certainly intellectual, which were certainly deep, but somehow they could understand and relate to Reb Chaim's Sichot Musariot more than to his Shiurim. In a similar vein, I very often think that Rav Salavechik's Koach in learning in Yeshiva University, if you ask the fellows that were there in the 60s, when I was there, what was the Koach of Rav Salavechik? So of course the Koach was in all areas of Torah. But his Lamdis, the, the day-to-day Shir, was the essence of his existence. Whereas many other people knew him from reading an essay that he had written, reading, uh, hearing a, a short Torah in the parasha, Sichot Musariot, the, the Musar talks, or whatever they heard from the Rav. Whereas we felt that the essence of the Rav was the Lamdis. I think 
you know, there is somewhat of a similar situation with Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, that although the yeshiva world knew that he's Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, a gadol v'tayra, the world generally knew him as in the world of Musr. There are a number of svarim that were left by Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. One of the svarim that was left was Shiurim on Maseches Gitten, Shari Chaim, Shiurim on Maseches Kedushin, and I really wonder how many Talmudim really use those svarim, how many people know about the svarim, how many people learn them. Of course, it's not up to me to explain the depth and the greatness of those of the svarim, the chidushim of Reb Chaim in, in the mesechtas of which we have his svarim. But what's interesting is that there's a volume called Sichot Musar, Shari Chaim, which came out in three little volumes, three different years of the Sichot that he gave week after week had been written. And today they're republished and republished, different editions. Today they can be bought in one volume as Sichot Musar from Adoneinu, Moreinu, Vrabeinu, Sara, Torah, Ma'oran, Shal Yisrael, Hagon, Reb Chaim, Shmulevitz, Rosh Yeshivas Mir. And these were the shirim that he said in 1971 to 1973. Those sichot have been already translated into English. They are learned in many different schools in Eretz Yisrael. I know that in the seminaries for women, there are classes that teach the sichot of Reb Chaim. Yeshivas, people learn the sichot. And somehow the popularity of this of the sichot musar became greater than the Svarim and Landis. Perhaps this is the way of the world. People understand Agada, people understand Machshava, and more people go to the world of Agada and the world of Machshava than the, to the words of Lambdas. But perhaps a fitting tribute to Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, whose yard site will be in Gimel Teves. He passed away when he was rather in 1978, Gimel Tevis of 1978, when he was 76 years old. Reb Chaim, in the Sefer of Sichot Musar, discusses Hespedim as well. What is the proper thing to say about a person? How do you give a Hesped? And he said there, the custom is to tell some stories about a tzaddik, about a certain person. And they think by telling stories they will depict his image. Reb Chaim said that's not true. Because and the act that's done, the story that's done, might be a true story. But we're afraid that maybe this particular story will, you'll leave out some important detail, you won't describe it, you won't understand the otzma, the power of that particular action, and then it's almost as if you said something that's dis- disrespectful. Lahavdil, we say about Hakadosh Baruch Hu that who can praise Hakadosh Baruch Hu? Who can do an adequate job? Even if, if you can't do it, then it's best not to even begin. Who can praise Hakadosh Baruch Hu? Who can do an adequate job? And if you can do an adequate job, then sometimes it's better not to even begin. So Reb Chaim says, for example, a story that's done, but 
you tell the story, but you don't understand the background, the uh, the the, under, the deep meaning of the person that did it is also belittling this the image itself, and therefore he says it is impossible really to describe the nifter by telling his stories because those stories could have different levels for different people, and until we know the person himself, we cannot really judge his actions. Just by judging his actions, we always can are afraid that maybe we're 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 praising him about silver, when we should have been talking about gold. Of course, a reference to the Gemara in the respect to praising HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But what we should do is to really understand that person himself, to understand who he was, and then we'll understand his action, and we'll understand who he really was. This complaint about Reb Chaim was very interesting to me, because this is something that Rav Salvechik also felt very strongly. The Rav always said, we give standard Hespedim about Gedolim. Whatever we say about one person, you could say about another. It, to differentiate between the Gadlus of one Gadol and another is the task of a Hesped. And when we talk about Reb Chaim it's, it's hard for me, who did not know him personally, to describe the uniqueness of Reb Chaim. The only thing that I said, and I found interesting, is this is one of the few Gedolim that lived the world of Musr, lived the world of Lambdas, and therefore became famous in both, wor- in both worlds. His, his Sefer on Musr, as well as his Sfarim on Lambdas, are classics in the Yeshiva world. Although perhaps the Musr Sfarim learned more than the Lambdas Sfarim, nobody will question the Lambdas of Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, the Rosh Yeshiva of Mir, for many, many years, the Maribit Torah for so many years, but yet a person so rooted in the world of Musr that his Sfarim are classics till this day. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. We'll be summing up the Arab Shabbat program now. Once again, uh, all the listeners are welcome to to write to J Snowbell, J S N O W B E L L at gmail.com for comments, criticisms. Everything is welcome, and I do hope that in the near future I'll be able to get back to those who have already written, and I thank them again. Um, just to sum up what we spoke about in the first half of the show, both the story of Chanukah and the parasha give this very important fundamental to us that everything is changeable even against the odds. Ma'atim, Rabim biyad ma'atim, the manys, the multitudes of the of the Greek Empire fell into the hands of the few of the of the Chashmonaim and changed everything around there. The Beit HaMikdash was returned to our hands and purified. The kingdom was returned to Jewish hands. The oil that should have only lasted for one day lasted for eight days against the odds. And here, of course, we needed a supernatural hand, but that's another message of Chanukah, that even against physical odds, when it doesn't even make sense at all, sometimes God can intervene. When we're standing up against the, the, the sea and the Egyptians are chasing after us to destroy us, Sometimes God can intervene and make things that are impossible possible. Yosef, who was in the in prison and had no hope of getting out, becomes a second in command in Egypt and reunites with his family against all odds. And you, and I, and Am Yisrael, can also break away from the odds, change our lives as we know them today 
and make them better for ourselves in the future. Shabbat Shalom.